take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter number two. Philippians chapter number two. What I'd like to do for the next four weeks, Lord willing, is uh, to preach through a series of sermons I'm calling the Doctrine of Christmas. To just deal with some essential Christian doctrines associated with the Christmas season. Here's the theological truth that I want you to tuck away in your heart this morning and to never, never, never forget. Just because at the Christmas season we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, that does not mean that we are celebrating the beginning of Jesus Christ, you understand. The Gospel of John chapter 1 begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus always has been, and he always will be. In the foundations of the world, there was Jesus. Before the foundations of the world, there was Jesus. And to miss this essential truth is to do violence to the, to the beauty of what God has done for us, celebrated by us in the Christmas season. This is not just the birth of a special child or the birth of a child who would somehow mysteriously become God or become God-like. This is God in all of his glory, robing himself with flesh and dwelling in the midst of his people. It really is a remarkable thing that God has done for us in sending forth his only begotten son, our Emmanuel, God with us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, teach these truths as beautifully as any passage in the New Testament. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he'd come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Would you join me in prayer? God, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We ask, God, that you would take these timeless truths, bring them to life before us, reveal to us their transformative power for each of us as individuals. God, would your spirit make manifest the presence of Christ in our life, convict us of our sin, reveal to us our deep and desperate need for forgiveness of sin, God. May our cry be to you and you alone in utter desperation this morning. Help us, God, to guard against this hypocritical affirmation of these truths without being deeply moved by by their implications for our lives. God, grant us the spirit of truth that we might understand deeply what we read in these verses. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. And you may be seated. Truly what God has done for us in sending his son is an incredible thing. In Genesis 3 and 8, the Bible says that in the cool of the day, God came and walked in the midst of the garden. He came there seeking fellowship with Adam and Eve, his special creation. In the same Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, and all of humanity falls with Adam and Eve. God casts them out of the Garden of Eden, an angel is positioned at the gate of the garden with a fiery sword in hand that they might never re-enter the Garden of Eden. And from that moment forward, there is a growing gulf fixed between an ungodly mankind and an infinitely holy God. By the time you come to Exodus 20, when God gives the law to the people of Israel, he warns, as we read in weeks past, if so much as the sole of one foot touches the base of Mount Sinai, where I'll condescend to give my law to the prophet Moses, that person will die. The severity of God's righteousness in contrast to our unrighteousness is so powerful that being in proximity to God is a deadly, dangerous thing. In Exodus 33, Moses asked boldly, God, show me your glory. Let me, let me behold your person, who it is that you are. He'd heard his voice at the fiery bush that was not consumed. He'd heard the thunderings of God's voice at Mount Sinai. But here Moses said, after having received the law, let me behold something of your glory. God says, Moses, if you see me for who I am, you'll not survive the encounter. And in an act of great grace, God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And God allows that Moses would see the backward parts of his glory, whatever it is that that means. Moses comes down from the cleft of the rock, down from the mountain, and the people are astonished because his countenance has changed. He's still glowing from his encounter with the most inglorious parts of God's great glory. It's more than what mankind can bear with. 
The glory of God, the holiness of God is severe. We speak of drawing near to God and we often couch modern worship experiences in the terms of being brought near to God. But I want you to know that getting close to a holy God as an unholy people is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Yet what God has done for us in Jesus is to veil his glory by the flesh that Jesus bears, such that we might rightly sing during the Christmas season, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the bright radiance of God's glory. He is the express image of his person. He said to the Pharisees, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In Jesus, God has come down so that he might bear the name Emmanuel. God is with us. Isn't this incredible? This is what distinguishes us from world religions. World religions are all born forth from a prophet or a sage at a certain interval in history, and they say, here are some steps for you in order that you might work your way up to God. If you take these measures in your life, if you discipline yourself, if you contemplate these truths, if you master your own, uh, your own will and you are a master of self-control and you're able to put into place certain techniques, certain uh, mechanical things can be at work in your life in order that you're able to climb your way up to God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says God has come down to us in order that the impossible might be made possible, that we might be where he is forevermore. It is an incredible thing that God has done for us in his son, Jesus. The birth is not the beginning. The birth is not the beginning. In the fullness of time, mildly, Jesus lay aside the glories of heaven and dwelt among man. He came unto his own in spite of the fact that his own would not receive him in order that all who did receive him might be called the children of God. Now, our passage calls us to model our lives after, after that example. Do like Jesus with regards to humility. This is an incredible charge. This is, this is a command that's heavy. It's weighty. Now, the call to humility is enough, isn't it? Usually, people aren't very good at humility. But when the call to humility is qualified by the example of Jesus, it, it, it becomes burdensome almost. It's, it's not, husbands, that you'll struggle with the command, love your wife. It's that you'll struggle with the command to love your wife like Jesus loved the church. That changes everything. It's not so much that we'll struggle with the idea or the notion of being humble. We understand that there's a, a place for humility, the need for humility. We wrestle with that in our personal lives. It's that here Paul says, be humble like Jesus. This is an otherworldly humility that you'll not master on your own. Only through the aid of the Spirit will you even begin the endeavor of being humble as Christ is humble. He's writing to the Philippian church struggling with a few issues. All of those issues resolved by the presence and practice of humility. 
I want you to look first at verses 1 through 4 in the call to Christian humility. Again, not just humility, but a distinctively Christian form of humility. Verse 1 says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Now, it reads as though these things are contingent, if these exist, but what Paul is saying and what's being communicated, hopefully you're tracking along with his statement here, is, is that because of these things, the, the if clause is there playing upon uh, the common sense nature of the existence of these principles. We might read verse 1 this way, because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is the consolation of love, because there is fellowship with the Spirit, because there is affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Now, he's not calling upon us to be completely uniform in all of our behaviors or activities. We're all individuals. God has made us uniquely, given us uh, dissimilar likes and interests, dissimilar talents and, and giftings. He's, he's saying, be driven by the gospel. Be driven by what you know of Jesus. And in this way, regardless of your backgrounds, regardless of your differences and talents, giftings, hobbies, or interests, my joy will be fulfilled and that you're thinking along the same lines, having the same kind of love, sharing the same feelings, focused on the one goal, which is to win the heavenly prize in Christ Jesus, to run our race well, that the kingdom of Christ would be advanced in the here and now. Now, what Paul says positively there with regard to humility, he now says from a negative perspective in verse 3, Don't, uh, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And we read verse 4 again. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Now, we could just dismiss and all go try to live according to this principle in verses 3 and 4. If, if, if there is anything in our text that cuts the, against the grain of American individualism, it is verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2. To count others more highly than yourself, to look out for the interest of others, even over your self-interests. This is the kind of humility that Paul calls us to. Now, he issues this call within the context of the book of Philippians. And since we've not been studying together the book of Philippians, and maybe it's been some time since you've read through Philippians, let's remind ourselves of the context for these verses. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi to encourage them for their gift. They sent Epaphroditus with a love offering for Paul. He's in jail at the time that he writes the letter Philippians. And he writes to thank them, to encourage them to continue to be lights in the world, bearers of the good news of the gospel. But there are some issues at Philippi as well. One of those issues is disunity. They're divided somewhat as a church. Now, things seem to be largely okay, but there's at least a couple of factions within the church. 
And in chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul does what the old preachers call meddling. And he calls the names of Udiah and Syntyche and basically says, you need to tell these ladies to get their act together, get on the same page. He essentially uh, says what he says here in verses 1 and 2. Be of the same mind, have the same interest, pursue one goal. And here's the deal. When we're after the same thing humbly in Jesus, don't all the petty things sort of find their place? Doesn't it all manage to work itself out? What, what I've experienced in my ministry is that the very moment that a church begins to be inwardly focused, that's when the disunity comes. But in so much as there is a gospel advancement focus, an outward focus, we're not really paying attention to, attention to all of these things that might divide us otherwise. If, if you want to resolve disunity in the church, you just need a good dose of humility, Christ-like humility. Here's the second issue. Paul is um, writing them from jail. And, and there's a bit of a struggle, it seems, to reconcile his imprisonment, his suffering, with the notion that here is a man who has been called by God, the founder of our church and preacher of the gospel par excellence. How is it that we understand Paul as this man blessed and favored by God, yet he's in jail writing us this letter? Paul helps them to work through that a bit, noting that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was never about Paul in the first place. It's always been about gospel advancement. It's always been about the glory of, of Jesus Christ. He's helping them to work through that. But if you, if you really want to reconcile suffering in your life personally, and even at the present hour, humility answers all of that. When we look at what Jesus has done for us, in stepping out of heaven and into earth, the difficulties, the challenges that he faced, none of which he deserved, by the way, it really helps to put our situation into perspective. We struggle with suffering because we believe we deserve something better, when in reality we only deserve condemnation. We would have our lives poured out in service to the king, regardless of what painful providence that means for us, if we really understand the big picture of what Jesus has done for us and what he's doing in the world around us. There's a third issue, and it's a theological issue. It's the presence of legalism in the church. This teaching that we work our way to God, we climb our way up to heaven by being faithful to a list of commands, whether those be uh, actually God's commands or our own self-contrived commands. That's the problem with the Judaizers Paul addresses in Philippians chapter number three. He notes that our righteousness is from God and it's based on faith, faith in Christ alone, received by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. This is Paul's teaching. But there's a competing teach, teaching in the church that says what you really need to do is A, B, and C, and then have faith in God, and all will be well with your soul. This is the way it always works, by the way. If, for you armchair theologians, you, you need to be very careful as, as you evaluate the teaching of others, as you evaluate the teaching of various systems. Everyone wants to say in our day and age that we believe in justification by faith. That is, that is very much true. But we believe, as the Bible teaches, justification by faith alone, not in addition to anything else. Back several years ago, and I don't want to go into too much of a tangent here, but there was a lot of effort at pulling together Protestants and Catholics around the doctrine of justification. Justification simply means, and you need to be familiar with that terminology, 
It just means that we are justified. That, that is, we are declared righteous before God because of Jesus' work for us. And that justification is received by faith alone. The problem is that not all Protestants and Catholics believe the doctrine of justification by faith alone. All believe the doctrine of justification. Brothers and sisters, here, here's, the end of the, here's the summary of, of that 45-second rabbit trail. You are justified before God by your faith in Christ and by your faith in Christ alone. You cannot be saved by your works. You cannot do things that will save you from your sin. It is faith in Christ and Christ alone that saves us from hell and for heaven. Now, if you really want to alleviate legalism or other theological systems that suggest something contrary to the gospel, looking in the face of Jesus and what he has done for us for our salvation, modeling our lives after his example of humility is really the answer. Humility affords us the opportunity of seeing ourselves as we are. And who we are are miserable, rotten sinners with nothing to commend ourselves to God. The favor with which God looks upon us is the work of Christ and Christ alone. Here Paul calls us to a distinctly Christian humility. And that humility is the answer to each, each of these challenges. Disunity and legalism and suffering are all alleviated by the kind of humility that God calls us to here. Now, maybe we should pause and talk about what humility is in the first place. There's all kinds of cliches regarding humility. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking more of others. And I got all of that. But I, I, want, I want to coach you here a little bit to help me this morning in the preaching. If you're not laboring as you meditate on what we're reading here in our discussion to think of real-life personal applications of these truths, you're really probably going to sell yourself short. This, this is the kind of principle, the kind of teaching that, that, that completely spans our life. There are applications in a gazillion ways as to how we model our lives after the humility of, of Jesus. So Paul says this is what you need to do. You need to be humble like Jesus. Then he gives us the example in verses 5 and 8, an example of Christ's humility. Verse 5, he says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. I want you to note first that Jesus is equal with God. That Jesus is God. Jesus was in conversation with the Pharisees. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father." John 1.1 1, 1 did not say in the beginning was a God, in the beginning was the God, in the beginning was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He clothes himself in flesh, and he comes to dwell in our midst. Jesus is God. But he doesn't use his authority for his own advantage, rather for our advantage. He didn't consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage in spite of the fact that it was his advantage. 
This is, the, this is the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. He could have stepped into this world insisting on our allegiance with a sword of wrath in his hand, cut us all down, and we'd have been deserving of the death that he handed out. But with great grace, he came and dwelt in our midst. Think about what he's done for us. In our, in our It's become kind of a cool thing to speak of the baby Jesus, as, as docile and passive and impotent in many ways, a, a, a less dreadful manifestation of Jesus. But I, I want you to know that in the manger lay the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The God came down in Jesus made himself susceptible to all of the difficulties and vulnerabilities of infancy. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? How Jesus sub subjects himself to the helplessness of infancy? Wrestle with that. How does that work? You'll spend the rest of the day trying to map that out. And yet that's what God does for us. He steps out of the glory of heaven and into this cruel, ugly, and nasty world, subjecting himself to all of the challenges of infancy and childhood, and as an adult, he makes himself subject to the very kings and rulers that he, in his absolute sovereignty, put in place. Pilate says arrogantly, hours before the crucifixion of Jesus, don't you know that I have power over you? Jesus says you'd have no power at all except it were given from above. And here is this docile, somewhat passive, seemingly powerless infant who is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. That's what Jesus has done for our salvation. When his own would not receive him, he came unto them. We didn't deserve that. We didn't deserve it at all. And yet he lays aside the glories of heaven, comes down and dwells in our midst and chooses not to use his authority for his own advantage but for our good. Verse 7 says, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he'd come as a man in his ex external form, he humbles himself even to the point of death. He emptied himself. What, what, is this, what does this mean? Sometimes people say he empties himself of certain divine attributes to try to make their theological system work. That's not what it means. Jesus is no less divine when he walks this earth than he is at the present hour at the right hand of God. There are certain limitations placed upon Jesus as the Godhead comes to dwell bodily in Jesus He's no longer omnipotent for this interval, in his, or, or at least omnipresent. He's omnipotent, but not omnipresent at this particular moment in history. He's only in one place at one time. Perhaps there are other ways that we might consider Jesus having emptied himself. I think the best way to think about what Jesus does for us in his condescension, in his incarnation when he come down, comes down, is that for a moment in time in history, the king lays aside his crown. He's no less king. But surely he lays aside the privileges of his kingship to serve our advantage and not his own. Here the scripture says he assumes the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, coming as a man in his 
external form and humbling himself even to the point of death. The essence of Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He never has changed and he never will change. But in his external form at the incarnation, Jesus is pleased to come down in the likeness of sinful man. Jesus comes down in the likeness of sinful man. A glory that could not be beholden is veiled by the presence of flesh that God would make himself in his unapproachable glory approachable by mankind, that we might come to him. This is the kind of humility that we're called to. Jesus took the form of mankind, subjected himself to death in order that we might have life. The point is, Jesus does something for us that we do not deserve. You don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it. We, we don't have points of reference for understanding the lengths to which God has gone to secure our salvation. No king has ever condescended to this extent. During the holiday season, presidents and kings and political dignitaries will travel around the world. They'll meet with impoverished children. They'll meet with military service personnel. They'll meet with people in foreign places for a variety of different reasons, and they'll be pictured on the nightly news, and we'll be enamored at the humility they've shown, the time that they've taken out of their day to go to these far-off distant places and to do something that they didn't necessarily have to do as an act of common grace toward those serving or positioned in various places. But no man, save the God-man, has ever abandoned the glory of heaven that he might come and dwell in the midst of his people. You didn't deserve that, and I didn't deserve that, and this is the kind of humility that the Bible calls us to pattern our lives after. What I'm saying to you is that this is really hard. Nevertheless, it's what God has called us to. I think there is a natural resistance to this call to hum humility on the part of mankind but there's an added layer of resistance when it comes to males in general. We're a prideful people. Ladies, you can all say amen right there. And, and I, I often say inside every man, there's a five-year-old boy waiting for an opportunity to show out. He lives within all of us. And I want you to know, guys, that this is not a call to some kind of meek, passage, uh, passive, effeminate outlook on life. This, this is not a call to humility that would lead us to shrink back, but to bear down and to bow up. What Jesus has called us to here, the example he's established for us here, is an incredibly high standard that, that you'll not achieve in fullness, but if you ever get close, it will be because you are straining and striving and laboring toward the end of being made over in the image and likeness of God's only Son. I'm telling you, Practically, this is the fix to all our issues, humility. You really don't deserve better than what you have at the present hour, so kind of get over it. You, you really don't deserve better than the treatment that you got from the person that you're offended by, so get over that, forgive, even as God has forgiven you. We, we just do not deserve better than the position that we find ourselves in. And when we hold ourselves up against the example of Jesus, that becomes 
painfully, painfully clear. Here's the example that you model your lives after. Now, there's some good news in our passage. There's a refreshing word of encouragement at the end. After we've been brought low by this incredibly heavy call to to humble ourselves after the pattern of Christ, we see in verses 9 through 11 the result of Christ's humility. Verse 9 says, as a result of, of his subjecting himself to death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbles himself And in the end, the Father exalts Jesus so much that he's given a name above every other name and all authority in heaven and on earth. The product of Jesus' humiliation is his exaltation. And thereby, Jesus establishes the pattern for the kingdom. This is hardwired into the constitution of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What does he teach in his most famous sermon? He says, if you want to be master of all, you must be servant of all. If you want to be first, you must be last. In the kingdom, everything is different. The way up is down. The way forward is back. The way to exaltation is humiliation. Jesus establishes the pattern for us. Think of Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. He's in the wilderness, 40 days 40 nights without food, and Satan comes to Jesus and says, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple and says, cast yourself down, and he even cites a Bible verse that says God would send angels that he would not uh, stump his toe on a stone. There would be no danger, no damage done. The Son of God, God would protect him, and Jesus says, You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. He tempts him there to win the praise of all Jerusalem in one fell swoop, literally. And then he takes him up on a high mountain and he says, you see the kingdoms? I'll give all the kingdoms of the world to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, worship the Lord thy God and thy Lord alone. The the moral of that encounter with Satan in the wilderness is simply put, the ends don't justify the means. Jesus deserved everything the devil offered him in the wilderness, but would not take the shortcut provided by Satan. Because in the kingdom, it doesn't work that way. In the kingdom, you don't grab glory for yourself. James 4.3 says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The language there suggests God makes war against the proud, but he lifts up the humble. The short of the long and the summary statement here is that when God gets ready to exalt you, he won't need your help to do it. In the kingdom, if you want to be first, you better be comfortable with being last. If you want to press ahead, the thing to do is get to the back of the line and put others above yourself. Consider the interest of others as a more pressing need even than those of your own. The the glory in all of this, the encouragement in all of this is that at the end of our race, A race well run, a race characterized by uh, humility that puts others first, 
a, a race that has been begun by coming to terms with God having sent his son on our behalf is it, the approval of our father who says, well done, my good and faithful servant. A place in the kingdom for us because of what Christ has done for us, which compels us as we run the race to run it the way he'd have us to run it. First John says, if we say we love Jesus, we ought to walk just as Jesus has walked. Th this is a powerful truth if you'll put it into practice. Now, sermons on things like humility, these things that we've made vague concepts of, are always challenging for me as a, as a preacher. Because you'll have the ability, if you're not very careful, to dismiss yourself from the application of this passage and, and the heavy, heavy standard that it establishes for us. But if you'll take a few moments in the close of our service and consider ways that this personally impacts you, you'll, 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 find, you'll find yourself moved to make some modifications in your personal life. I'm convinced of this. For, for the church this morning, those unforgivable people in your life, we all have them. You, you know what this passage calls us to do? It calls us to forgive. For the church, those ungrateful people in your life, you know what this passage calls us to do? It calls us to continue to show grace and mercy and compassion. For those unlovable people in your life, this passage calls us to continue to love them. Because our love is really not about what they deserve. Our love is modeled after the love of Jesus. I know I've said this before, but it bears saying again, and I'm convinced that this is, this is where it's at when it comes to Jesus' ethical teachings. Whether it be this passage or others like it, where Jesus says, love your enemies, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. The common thread in each of those moral commands is this. Don't let what you do be impacted or affected by what the people around you do. You just serve Jesus, serving for Jesus and for Jesus alone. Serve Jesus. So personal application. Now, I, I wonder what's floating around in your hearts and minds. We have a situation within our own family. I have a situation within my own personal life, a person that we're trying to love. We're doing everything that we can to love this person. And this person pushes back. This person doesn't even like me as best I can tell and pushes back at every effort that, that we're making to try to show them grace and mercy. And trailer park Wade, which is my alter ego, would like to just knock him upside the head, you know? That's what trailer park Wade would do. That's what the natural man would do. And, and, and I just keep hearing the words of Jesus, do unto others. And I, and I keep thinking about the example of what Christ has done for me. This incredible step that he's taken out of heaven down to earth, that I might have life everlasting. I'm telling you, when it comes to interpersonal relationships and most other issues in our life, this is the antidote. This is it. For some of you, the issue is more pressing than the practical applications of this passage that we've been talking over over the last few minutes. For, for some of you, life and death are in the balance. It's not about so much resolving issues between you and someone from whom you're estranged or breaking down the pride in your personal life. 
it's, it's about being reconciled to God. The most dangerous fractured relationship for you is the one between yourself and God who is in heaven. Now I want you to know that the only way for an unholy person, and that's who you are apart from Jesus, the only way for an unholy person to be reconciled to God is by faith in Jesus Christ. You can't fix it on your own. If you could, you'd mess it up afterward. But if you'll look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who stepped out of heaven and finished the work of salvation for us, if you'll look to Jesus, if in the words of John 1, you would receive him, to you this morning, he'll give the right to be called a child of God.